Thank you for your worship in uh, song. And now we continue that worship as we walk through uh, God's word together this morning. Um, We're going to look at Acts chapter 12, and we're going to look at the bulk of the chapter. I told you last week, we sort of skipped over 12 and sort of tied in the beginning part of 13, but we come across what I think is one of the most interesting and fascinating narratives in the book of Acts, and there is a a whole group of other fascinating narratives. This one's interesting just because of how peculiar it is and what happens as the church begins to be persecuted, and they begin to experience suffering and calamity as they seek to be faithful to the cause of Christ and to the name of Jesus. And where it gets them in the spirit of faithfulness, the more faithfully they walk with God, the more in trouble they get with the authorities at this time. And so we begin to see this sort of begin to unfold in Peter's life and also to the church in a broader sense. You know, we, uh, we live in a day and age as we approach this political season, we are seeing, we have been seeing, we even woke up this morning and we are seeing uh, what the Bible would just sort of characterize in, in a way as like days of lawlessness. Uh, just some absolutely horrific things are happening in the midst of our, of our country. And, and as we get closer to the election, uh, those things are only going to intensify. And when we look at political parties, when we look at global conflict, one of the things that we have to understand as believers is that there are only, according to the Bible, two kingdoms. There's not three, there's not four, there's not in the Bible political parties, there's not Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, and all those that find themselves in between. But the way the Bible talks about the kingdom is he says there's either the the kingdom of man and then there's a kingdom of God. And it's these two kingdoms that are adversarial to one another, that only one of these kingdoms at the end of the day is going to win. And ultimately, we know that according to God's word, that it's the kingdom of God that is going to flourish. And so as believers, here's the deal. Our allegiance is not to the kingdom of man, but it is rather to the kingdom of God. But when we see conflict, when we see increased days of social unrest, of anxiety and political turmoil, religious turmoil. There's an obligation for believers to respond to what we see in a a very specific way. And one of the things that Acts 12 is helpful for is it shows us in a descriptive way how the church responded in the midst of conflict. And so what we're meant to do is to glean from their behavior and to see how they behaved as sort of a prescription for us today and what our our chief posture ought to be as we experience conflict. And so I wanna draw your attention beginning in verse one of Acts chapter 12 where the text reads about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that, that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him in verse four, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So a couple of things are going on. In verse one, we are introduced to a new character, not to be confused with his father or his grandfather, a gentleman by the name Herod the King. 
Herod comes from a really horrific dynasty of rulers that did really horrific things uh, to Christians and really towards Judaism in particular. His dad was the one that actually had all of the newborn infants put to death immediately after Jesus's birth. His grandfather was the Herod that issued the edict that John the Baptist would be beheaded. And so he comes from a lineage of fathers and grandfathers, a history, a family tree who, yes, they were made in the image of God, but they committed completely horrific and evil acts against God's people. This was Herod's legacy. Herod Agrippa is who we speak about today in verse one. And so this Herod, the king, begins to basically get his eyes up and he begins to look at these self-described followers uh, known as Christians or little Christ. Following this man who the world had deemed in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, that these guys were, they were cult leaders. They had weird beliefs that were peculiar to, the, to their understanding of religion and what it should be. And so they begin to rise, the, the Christians begin to grow. And so Herod sees this and he begins to sort of feel pressure from them or threatening in such a way that the Jews began to speak ill of the church. And so he begins to capitulate to the culture that was around him. So he begins to persecute the church. And then in verse two, he goes and he kills James, the brother of John, with the sword. I want you to notice just from the very beginning, from the very beginning days of the church, the church was filled with adversity around it. The church was surrounded by conflict. There, there was no understanding in the early church that, that if I'm gonna follow Jesus, well, of course, I'm gonna have to suffer for his namesake. They lived and, and really thrived in the midst of that. And you contrast that today with what is going on now. And, and oftentimes the message that we um, hear when it comes to following Jesus is it's trust in Jesus. And oftentimes he's gonna make your life a little bit better that you're gonna receive the blessings of God and the benefits of God, but, but, but life should, theoretically, according to some, it should get a little bit easier and a little bit better. Well, we know that when we back up out of this and we look at scripture in its whole, we, we recognize that for the Christian, we live and we exist constantly in the midst of adversity. In fact, so much so that I would go so far to say that Adversity is the primary means and the primary tool by which God uses to shape your faith. God uses adversity to grow your trust and your hope. He uses adversity to grow your faith and your understanding in him, not to push you away in another direction. It's the chief tool that God uses in his toolbox. It's, it's what he uses to sharpen and to shape Christians throughout history, but more so specifically here in the day and day in which we live, which is no different than the early church here within the first century. Adversity in the hands of God is one of his primary tools for growing our faith, for growing your faith and for growing my faith. But I want you to notice as Peter was put into prison, if you look back at verse five, you notice that at the end, he says, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest in prayer for him was, earnest prayers were made on behalf of him to the Lord. Now this word in the Greek is interesting because it literally means the, the earnest prayer. It, it, it carries with it this idea of stretching and straining towards something. 
It's the notion that uh, it's the, the third set and the final few reps with a weightlifter as they begin to strain and, and they begin to stretch at the very end and it becomes almost agonizing. It's the picture of the runner who's finishing the marathon or finishing the race and the last 100 yards, they just sort of go all out and expend all of their energy. They are straining at what it is that they're trying to accomplish because they believe in what they're trying to do to either get the weights up off their chest or to finish the race and and to beat the time or to beat the person that they find themselves up against. But for these Christians, they weren't laboring in athletic endeavors, but rather in the midst of adversity and conflict, the thing that they labored in was a posture of prayer, was a position in which they would cry out to the Lord to intercede for their friend, Peter, who was in jail. But I want you to notice something else about this. Peter was arrested unjustly. He was imprisoned unjustly for no real cause other than he was faithfully teaching about the kingdom of God. But the church's response to the authorities that were over them in this moment, they didn't start sharpening their swords. They didn't start counting their guns. They didn't start thinking about violent protests. They didn't start thinking about setting buildings on fire. They didn't start thinking about accosting other individuals and assaulting them. The posture of the church in this moment was a posture in which before they did anything else, they just wanted to get on their hands and their knees and on their faces before God and they wanted to pray. And what this teaches us as a church today is when the world responds with the sword, the church has to respond with prayer. And too often, we think prayer being a second or third thing that we'll do after we show action, as if prayer is the inactionable thing or the passive thing that we demonstrate. And far too often, we run to the Lord after we've exhausted every other means at our disposal. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't exhaust whatever means that we have before us, but what it does mean, and gently can I remind us of this as a church this morning, is that our first priority in the position that we take in the midst of adversity It's not to go count our bullets or to buy guns or to stock up or to do whatever it is that the kingdom of man would do, but our posture is to be one that is characterized by the kingdom of God that we respond with prayer. As one pastor theologian put it in his work, let the nations be glad, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not in a domestic intercom. What he means by that, that is so relevant to the text today and what we're seeing the church enable is he understands and the text wants us to understand this idea that we are in a war and in a battle. That our enemy is not against flesh and blood, it's not against a person, but it's against the spirits and the principalities and the things that we can't often see that are going on behind the scenes. And life is war. There are things in which we enjoy in life and there are ease and and there's comfort at times and, and we thank the Lord when we experience those things. But if we don't view life as a battle, then we will simply use prayer as some sort of beckoning intercom when we get in trouble or this litany request of things. God, help me do this. Help me get this job. Help me provide here. And listen, God cares about those things. He really does. 
But the primary energy and the focus of our prayer life ought to be towards things that evolve around the kingdom of God growing in this world and expanding. Not that God doesn't care about the little things that go on in our life, but prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie and not a domestic intercom. But if we forget for some reason and begin to become misaligned that scripture teaches that following Christ is meant to be a life of ease, let us remind ourselves what Jesus says in John 16, where he says, listen, Christian, friend, you will have suffering in this life. But be courageous because I have conquered the world. I have defeated sin, death, and evil. It's over. It's finished. And ultimately, it has an answer and a response. But you will, Christian, have suffering within this world that if we are following Christ and pursuing him, oftentimes that suffering is going to come find us along the way. And so our posture needs to be one that we earnestly, that we are stretching, that we are straining towards the Lord in a posture and a position of prayer as we seek his face and as he ultimately will bring comfort from that very posture. But I want you to see in verse six, as Peter was kept in prison, the church was praying, but if you look at verse six, something kind of peculiar begins to happen. We notice the posture of Peter in the midst of this. He says, now when Herod was about to bring him out because the Passover was over and and on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries were before the door guarding the prison. So here Peter is unjustly being arrested for just trying to faithfully proclaim and teach the gospel. He's put in chains, bound in prison. Guards are around him unjustly. Here he is, and we find Peter not in a position where he's taken up the sword, ready to fight, but no, rather his posture in this moment, according to verse six, was what? He's sleeping. Like what a peculiar response response for a man who has been unjustly accused, but yet seems to be at peace. And the question is, why in the world would, would, he, would he come to this place? I believe wholeheartedly that what this text teaches is that within Peter's life, he was resting in something that we would just understand as believers as the sovereignty of God. He was comforted by the fact that his God ultimately was in control, that his God had not been dethroned, had not forgotten him, had not forsaken him, and that he was allowing this adversity to shape something in Peter's life, but also in the life of the church as they were looking at Peter in jail. And so he found some sort of of comfort and and even solitude to a degree in the sovereignty of God in this moment. Peter was guarded by soldiers, but ultimately his heart was being guarded by God. That's what Paul tells the church in Philippi. You remember this verse in Philippians 4, where Paul says this, don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer, petition, with thanksgiving, Present your request to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. So here he is on a cold floor 
No mattress, no pillow, no blanket. Here he sits in chains on a concrete floor with guards all around him, unjustly accused, unjustly about to be prosecuted and even put to death as far as he is concerned. And then verse seven, the text picks up and it says this, and behold, all of a sudden this angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell and he strikes Peter on the side and and wakes him saying, get up. And the chains fell off his hands. Can you imagine this moment in Peter's life? Like there he is laying asleep. Either he just, he's tired, he's resting in, in the Lord. And, 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 and so he sleeps and he sleeps well. And then all of a sudden this angel appears and strikes him in the side, like shakes him, jars him up, says, get up, the chains fall off. Verse eight, and the angel said to him, get dressed, put on your sandals. And, and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and then follow me. And he went out and he followed him. And he didn't know that which was being done by the angel was real, but he, he thought he was seeing a vision. So it appears to him that, that he's in the midst of like the third or fourth level of inception at this point, right? And he's in this trance and he's within the dream, within the dream, within the dream. And then all of a sudden he, he sort of begins to realize that, well, maybe I'm not in the midst of, of inception in the dream, but, but here I am and this is actually happening. The chains have, have literally fallen off and here I am. In verse 10, it goes on and he says, and when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city and it opened for them of its own accord and they went out went doing a one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself in 11, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and he's rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting to be done to him. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying for for his release and they were interceding for him. And so he knocks on the door at the gateway and this servant girl named Rhoda comes and answers, recognizing Peter's voice. Notice this, in her joy, she hears his voice. She did not open the gate, but runs in and reports that Peter was standing at the gate. So you have this incredible moment where their leader has been arrested and imprisoned. They're praying to God, deliver this guy, free him from prison. They're praying this very thing. He comes to the door, chains are off, gates are flung wide open. He's past the security guards. Nobody knows anything that's gone on. She recognizes his voice and instead of going, Peter, why don't you come in? She just takes off and leaves him stranded there. And he's standing there like, what's, going, what's happening? Just left at the, at the footsteps of the door and she goes back in and she tells the church, listen, they respond to her in verse 15 and they said to her, you are out of your ever loving mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's gotta be his angel. This, <clears throat> this can't really be Peter. I think that in this moment, one of the things that I think is, is helpful for us to see or that at least that we sort of pull out, <clears throat> excuse me, from the text You have this moment where the church incredibly is praying for God to do something miraculous. And then God answers the prayer and he does something miraculous. But then the church, having prayed, asking God to do something miraculous, God answers the prayer, does something miraculous. The church still doesn't believe that he's gonna do something miraculous that he just did. And they sort of sit there in a place of like unbelief, like we can't believe God really did that. Some of you, Maybe you've been praying prayers for for a long time and maybe you're at this moment in time in your life where you're just like, I don't know that God's ever gonna answer that prayer. 
You got prayers in your life like that? I do. But I've been praying them so long that I don't know that within my lifetime, God will ever answer them. But I've also been around the block long enough to recognize that oftentimes God answers my prayers, but he answers them in a, in a totally different way and with different timing than what I would have expected. And I think in this moment, I think the church was a little bit freaked out that, that God would answer the, the hard thing in their life that, that, that was, seemed to be an insurmountable hill to be able to conquer. And God answers it and he delivers Peter. And so she's in there reasoning with them. It says in 15 that she kept insisting that he's out there. No, I promise. It's this idea that like it took her a little while to even convince them, well, let's go to the door and check. All the while, Peter's just, he's just hanging out. Like, you know, I'm, I'd be looking around, like, I hope those guards aren't following me anywhere. Like, he's just, he's just chilling and, and hanging out, waiting on somebody to come let him in. But it says in 16, Peter keeps knocking. And when they opened, they saw him, and it says they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he then described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and, and he goes to another place. A couple of things that I think are peculiar about this, number one, or that, are, that we should notice and draw from is in 17 when Peter tells them to hold on a second, be quiet and listen. I think it's this demonstration in Peter's life that God did something miraculous in his life. And the temptation for any man or woman or child in the midst of God doing miraculous things in his life is go, not look at how wonderful God is, but yeah, I'm good enough for God to use me. And I wanna tell the world about this. Instead, Peter's response was, hold on, I didn't do this. God did this. I didn't save myself, God saved me. I'm not my own redeemer, I'm not my best deliverer. In fact, I, I can't redeem myself, I can't deliver myself, but God can in his mercy and he redeems him and he delivers him. And Peter makes sure almost immediately that they gave credit to the right person and that he didn't take any credit. But notice at the end of verse 17, it says, tell these things to James and the brothers. And then it says that Peter just departs and he, he travels to another place. I, I found that weird all week long wrestling with, like, why would you leave at this moment? Like you have no real clear word from the Lord. We don't know that God said, go here, go there. He just, it says he up and he leaves and he sort of just sort of escapes from the circumstance. And I wrestled with this all week trying to, to see why, why would he include that and why would, would he do that? And I, and I think the answer to that lies in the understanding that in this moment, so much of life, um, we don't have like audible voices from God saying, do this or do that. There are times where God speaks authoritatively in, in our lives and, and it's clear, but there are times where it's a little bit gray and I'm, and I'm just seeking not to sin or to not sin, but rather in the midst of multiple options that are gonna ultimately get me to where I need to be. I may veer off a little bit up here or I may veer off a little bit up here, but what I'm trying to do is to apply wisdom to the circumstance. And instead of Peter staying there and, and poking Herod, you know, back in the eye and saying, look what, look what I've done, look what my God's done, he rather just lets the testimony of the church be in the place. And instead he applies wisdom and he shows discipline in this moment. That's what I think is happening. 
And he's showing, showing intentionality to, to get to, a, to another direction as he's applying wisdom. And, and here's, here's the application from that from the text for you this morning. We never automatically just drift towards godliness. We never drift by accident. We don't wake up one day and go, man, I'm godly. I have done it. I've achieved it. I mean, Andrew Peterson does that sometimes, but we don't. Most human beings don't. Godliness is not an accident. People who are walking with Jesus and communing with him in fellowship and with relationship, they are daily making decisions and choices that will lead them down a path of godliness. And so you wanna learn and and know what it means to not just be a better person, but that's one of the overflows of following Jesus. You wanna know how to, to get to this place where you're walking closely with God. You don't just wake up tomorrow and it automatically happens, but rather you make intentional choices and decisions to get there. Godliness is not a mistake. It's not a chance. But people who are walking with Jesus have have made these these distinct choices day in and day out to live in the spirit and to put their flesh to death. They are choosing that daily and regularly. And here in this moment, he he understands that. And so he, he changes his direction, making that choice, showing direction. And he's and he's he's moving with intentionality and with purpose. Now the end of the text. After verse 17, it, it sort of jumps around a little bit and it talks about Herod. It, it talks about the likelihood that uh, historians would say that Herod probably interrogated the, the guards. In fact, if your prisoner escaped under Herod's watch, uh, you typically would be put to death and you would be killed as a consequence for letting the prisoner escape. Herod, as I said before, though he was made in the image of God, I think it's fair to say he's probably a terrible human being based on what what he's done. And to me, guys like Herod in the Bible and and, and guys throughout history are reminders that do atrocious things. Listen, uh, in the kingdom of man, uh, there's often this inclination uh, that, that people are good at their core and that there's no such thing really as evil. Listen, evil is a real thing. Evil's real. There, there are bad people that wish to do other people harm uh, intentionally and, and they find delight in, in doing that. As a, it's not speaking for all millennials, but looking at millennials in general, there seems to be this naivety to, to evil, that evil is real. It exists. It's within our world. But as we see this, we see the consequence for pursuing really what's known as this kingdom of man and this man-centered idea. And if you look in verses 23 and 24, you see the consequences of this, for it says immediately, an angel of the Lord, speaking about Herod, strikes him down because he did not give God the glory. And it says he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. A terrible way to die ultimately at the end from a guy who, who chose to capitulate to a few people to arrest and persecute Christians and to put them to death and to challenge uh, the kingdom of God in that sense, this was the consequence. But notice the result as well. But in the midst of that, the word of God increased and it multiplied. So two things that I wanna end with. One, I think that if you back out of looking at Peter and we look at the posture of the church, I think Herod is an example and a warning for Christians 
against what I would just call just the sin of pride and self. Thinking more highly of ourselves than than we ought to, not pursuing love of neighbor um, and and thinking that the world evolves around us rather than than God and and his kingdom and what he wants. And, And Jesus has a word for that. He tells us in Luke 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. But I think more so than, than Herod's legacy of, of pride and, and self and, and ego and narcissism and, and all the things that existed within his life, I think it's a reminder that, that for the church to be filled with the spirit of God and to walk according, we've got to make sure that we are plugging into the right systems and the right person, specifically in his word. A couple of years before World War II began, in the little town of Atasca, Texas, just 30 miles south of Fort Worth. They had a school, and within that school, one, one day, the school caught on fire. This is pre-World War II. So the school catches on fire, and 263 lives perished in that school. They died. The town went through an incredibly difficult time. It grieved for a long time, and But at a certain point, they began to rebuild again and began to think about schooling their kids. And so they built a new school. And and the goal was, we're we're, um, we're gonna do everything we can within our power to keep these kids safe so that we never have a fire like this again and we never lose 263 lives again. So they build this state-of-the-art school and at the time, and, and it's got um, all of the, of the new uh, sprinkler fire code systems. In fact, it's sort of a spectacle that people from the community, from the state, and from the country are coming into this Itasca school out here in the middle of nowhere, 30 miles south of here, to see the sprinkler system, to see what it is that they're doing to keep their, their students safe. Well, the town grows and it continues to grow. And so as more people come in, the schools get overcrowded. And so Atasca says, listen, we've got to add on to this school. We're outgrowing our facilities. And so they hire a contractor. He comes in with this relatively new school that had only been there for seven years. They were boasting that it was the safest school in the country. And this contractor comes in to add on to the school system only to discover that out of the millions of dollars that they spent building this school and all the sprinklers and the pipes and all the things that were laid in the school, the contractor never actually connected the sprinkler system to the water. And for seven years, they thought they were safe and they thought it would never happen again here in this school. And all the while, the thing that they boasted in the most that would keep them safe, they never actually had it to begin with. I guess as I was thinking through and, and, and knowing that story, this is probably where city managers and codes and ordinances come into play to make sure that these things don't happen. And you know, it's one thing to not be connected to a fire sprinkler system and not have any pressure in your lines. And to do that for seven years and to think you're safe, it's another thing to go to church your whole life. It's another thing to come to church for a couple years or or days and weeks, but never actually be connected to the source of the one who gives you life and relationship. I believe that here in this church, there there are perhaps some people here today that have come to this church their entire life, but, but your spiritual well-being, your soul has never actually been connected to the source, to Jesus. You know the songs, you know the answers, but you don't know the Savior.
My plea for us this morning is a simple one. It's for us to know that we're connected with the source and the author and the giver of all life. To be assured of that and to walk and to live and experience that truth. Maybe you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ. You, you don't know Jesus. You've never prayed to receive him, trusted him as Lord, asked for forgiveness of your sins. We would love nothing more that at, in these next few moments that we have for you to receive him as he reveals truth and speaks truth to your life through his spirit and convicts you of your sins. We want you to know him as we do. But church, maybe you, you know him, but maybe you've drifted off a little bit. You've meandered away and, and you find yourself not walking as closely. Maybe, maybe you've got a leak in your pipes and you need to tighten those pipes up and get that pressure running again and you need to be renewed and you need forgiveness of sins. The Bible says that we are to confess our sins to one another and when we do that, God forgives us and he heals us and he brings life and restoration to us. So we're doing the things that God wants us to do. I'm gonna invite Josh and the team to come back up with me. I'm gonna lead us in a time of prayer and then we're gonna sing in a time of response. So bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we, we thank you that in Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins, that you heal us and, and you give us life. We wanna be a church with purpose. We wanna be a people with purpose. And we pray ultimately knowing that that only purpose that we have ultimately that matters is the purpose that you give us according to your kingdom. Lord, I pray this morning for those that are here today that have not discovered that purpose, that plan. And I pray that today they'd come to know you, convict them of their sins right where they're sitting. And, and Lord, they would tell me or a staff member or their neighbor that they're, they're ready to, to know Christ and they want to know him. But Lord, for our church that's been walking with you, that maybe they've just drifted a little bit, I pray, Lord, that today would, would be this call, like the church prayed for Peter, that we would strain and, and we would labor in, in positions of prayer for your kingdom and, and not our own. God, forgive us when we haven't done that well and, and right, but, but bring joy and life to us in your gospel today. Father, help us respond according to your will and your spirit. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna invite you to stand and worship as Josh and the team close us out this morning. I'm gonna be down front. Matt and Johnny will be down front with me. Larry's down front, one of our elders. And we'd love to pray over you. Uh, if you have a need in your life, we'd love to pray over you and for you. Um, maybe you need to trust Christ as your savior today. We would love to see you come into the kingdom of God uh, in these next few moments. And so would you stand and, and sing with us and sing as unto the Lord.